Well, good morning. Um, I, um, before I begin the message, um, might be appropriate for me to kind of give you a heads up or an update. I know last week many of you were asking, hey, what's going on with Pastor Doug? If you, if you weren't aware, I preached at the first service and, and then uh, I wasn't here for the second and third. And so uh, Pastor Wes and Eric and the guys in the sound booth kind of did their best. And they pulled together and came off well and replayed the sermon from the first two services. And people have been asking me, are you OK? What happened? So I should let you know uh, I, I had a kidney stone. So that was a lot of fun. Um, but I'm, I'm pleased to announce with great joy that the stone has rolled away. So, I, uh, yes, yes. I feel much, much better. Yes, yes. So um, Paul came into my life when I was in seventh grade. And uh, I noticed him the moment he walked into our classroom, and which wasn't hard to do. I mean, in a town of 900 people with a couple dozen or so students in your grade, you notice somebody new. Um, and, and Paul had the misfortune of walking in while we were in the midst of an English class where we were reading source stories. And one of the source stories is about this. One of the main characters was this chimpanzee named Chumley who kind of had long arms and swung his arms when he walked. Well, Paul walked in. Paul had long arms. Guess what he was known as all the way through high school? Chumley, which was a term of endearment for him because um, Paul was a good guy. Everybody liked him, laid back, sense of humor, always ready for a good time, always everybody's friend. Uh, he was bright. He's funny. He became a good friend of mine. And to say the least, Paul was, um, he was a character. He, he marched to the beat of a different drummer. Um, one of my favorite Paul stories was in our last year of high school, our senior year. We were on the track team, and it was uh, the last track meet of the year, or close to it. And uh, Paul was a distance runner, and he was pretty good at it, but he, he didn't work super hard. He just was out there for a good time, just socializing. And he pulled me aside before the race and said, Doug, um, I got something special planned. Watch me at the end of the race. And so knowing Paul, knowing Chumley, I thought, yeah, I've got to be there for that. So I was standing at the, at the finish line, and Paul was in the middle of the pack, actually a little closer towards the front. He usually placed, but he never won. And, um, you know, at the end of a you know, 32-mile run, that's what it was back then, eight laps, usually towards the end, unless you're a really, really strong runner, there wasn't much left when you got to the finish. Maybe you'd have a kick, but it wasn't, you know, you're kind of really gritting your teeth and pushing hard. But Paul, with 100 yards to go, just took off like he was shot out of a cannon. And like, wow, he obviously saved a lot back. And he's about 30 yards from the finish line, and he starts reaching around in the back of his running shorts, like, what is he doing? And he pulled out a piece of cloth, let it go of it, and it had strings attached and opened up like a parachute. Like a, he coasted across the finish line, and uh, our, our coach um, about had a coronary on the spot. He was not happy with Paul, but what could he do? You know, it was the last track meet. He was a senior. At last I knew Paul was uh, still in Topeka, Kansas, working for the National Guard. You ever know somebody like that? Somebody who marches to the beat of a different drummer. You know, somebody who kind of breaks the mold, um, somebody who travels off the beaten path, um, unconventional, who challenges the status quo, who, who goes against the current. Everybody's swimming this way. They swim that way. Well, there's another guy named Paul uh, who was sort of a character who swam against the current. And we find him in the New Testament. And when we first meet Paul, he didn't start out that way. He was kind of an establishment guy. Uh, he was part of the Pharisees. He was a rule follower. He's all in on the traditions of the Jewish faith and Phariseeism. And he was about doing the things the right way, letter of the law kind of guy, very zealous. 
And Paul, who was known as Saul back then, had a very big problem with this new group of people who called themselves followers of Jesus and, and who believed that Jesus was the Son of God and that he died on a cross for our sins and that he rose from the dead and that they had encountered him. And, and, and this, this really rubbed Saul the wrong way. And so he devoted his life to pursuing them and making life very, very hard for them, so difficult, in the hope that they would eventually give it all up, get in line, and swim the same direction that he was. But then something happens. This Saul, he's on his way to Damascus to, to give these Christians a hard time to persecute them. He encounters, he has this incredible encounter with the risen Christ. And, and, and he's irrevocably and radically changed. Not only does his name change from Saul to Paul, he's a different person completely. And everything he believed in is turned upside down, and he begins to preach the very Christ that he before had rejected. He's a very different kind of guy. Listen to this story that kind of gives you a sense of, of, how, of how different he was from Acts 14. And the context is, is Paul and his good friend Barnabas. They're out traveling around uh, the Roman Empire, uh, visiting cities, encouraging churches that have been started, preaching the gospel, seeing people come to faith in Christ. And um, in, in Acts 13, they are run out of town by religious leaders. They've been in Antioch. Many people come to faith in Christ, but the civic and religious leaders, they don't like this. It's causing all sorts of unrest in the city. People are doing things differently. This is not good. They're questioning all the, all the value systems of their, of their city. And, and so they get so upset about it that they decide to stone Paul and Barnabas. Well, Paul and Barnabas, they get word of it. And what does a rational guy do when you hear you're going to be murdered? You leave town. So they, they leave town. And then we pick it up in chapter 14, where Paul and Barnabas are in a different city called Lystra. And here, again, powerful things happen. A, a, a man who is lame uh, is healed. Um, and we pick it up in verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Okay, these are the cities that they've been run out of. And won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. So this time... They got him. Paul didn't get out of time, out of t- town in time. They got him, or they think they do, because we see that they think he's dead, but he's just really badly wounded and, and hurt. So he, he makes his way back in the city, he spends the night, and then he and Barnabas leave the next day for a different place. Verse 20. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. So after he's stoned, after he's left for dead, after he's run out of these cities, he puts himself right back into the crosshairs, right back into mortal danger. What kind of person does that? What is he thinking? Why would he do such a thing? Well, it's clear from the scriptures he does this because he has had a powerful encounter with a risen Christ and it rocks his world. And, and it causes him to reevaluate everything about his life, what's important to him, what he's based his life on. And after he had done so, it caused him to hold loosely, to, 
to his previous life, even his physical, mortal life. In Philippians 3, Paul says this. He, he lists all the accomplishments of his previous life, his education, his accomplishments, his reputation, on and on, all these things. And then he said, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. Whatever he valued before Christ, in other words, whatever he counted as gain, he now lets go of. He makes a conscious decision to let go of it. And he goes on to say that to live for Christ, even if it leads to death, that's what it's all about. So after meeting Christ and having his life transformed, Paul radically reorders his priorities and his values, which is always a sign of a person who has been met Christ in a powerful way. I mean, because if a person basically is the same person after Christ as they were before Christ, then there's something amiss. They're, they're, they're missing the point somehow. If, other than maybe going to church once in a while, they're the same person. If, other than praying once in a while, if, other you know, maybe trying to use better language once in a while, a person is basically the same person as before Christ, there's something not right. Because Christ rose, died and rose for us. And the Holy Spirit is given to us to make us new and transform us, not just polish us up a little bit, make us more you know, presentable to God and maybe other people. A, a powerful encounter with Christ will radically reorder a person's priorities and values. And a life surrendered to Christ will be noticeably different than the status quo and the world around And a person following Jesus wholeheartedly will eventually make waves because they're going against the current. And that's what Paul did. But of course, Paul takes his cues from his Lord and Savior Jesus. Let's take a look at the passage that Garrison read from Luke 9, verse 51. As the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, in other words, the time is approaching when he's going to be crucified and, and resurrected, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So Jesus knows what's coming, and most people would have avoided a destination where pain and suffering and persecution was going to happen. They would have headed in the other direction as fast as they could. But Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So we have the picture here of a man who who knows what lies ahead. But he goes anyway. He sets his jaw. He straightens his back. And he travels through Jerusalem to the cross. Letting nothing stop him from accomplishing his mission and his purpose. Now, I would probably take the path of least resistance. But Jesus goes against the current He literally goes off the beaten path for a Jewish man, as we see in the next verses. It tells us in verse 52 that Jesus was passing through Samaria and approached a Samaritan village looking for hospitality and lodging. What's unusual about this? Well, this is enemy territory. Uh, We we saw from a couple weeks ago that the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along at all. They had a long-running feud. 
And Jewish people would have considered Samaritans as not worthy of association. They were traitors to their faith and to their people and culture. And, and many Jews wouldn't even travel through Samaria. They would go around it, which was a long way and much harder to get to Jerusalem. But Jesus cuts through Samaria and he even seeks interaction and encounters with the Samaritans. And he receives, not surprisingly, rejection. A slammed door in the face. How does Jesus respond? Jesus receives rejection. Jesus gives grace. He refuses to bring judgment down upon them. And then he moves on to another probable rejection at another Samaritan village. This is not typical, normal behavior. I mean, when somebody treats us poorly, they disrespect us. You know, it's kind of, don't diss me, don't, don't, you know, and we kind of push back, we respond in kind, or we certainly don't, you know, seek favors from them. But Jesus came to break the power of sin and death. He came to break the, the to, to bridge the separation, the gap between us and God and between us and each other, so we could be forgiven and find freedom in him to live differently. So let's keep going. Verses 57 through 62. Jesus keeps going down the road, resolutely set his eyes, his mind, his heart on Jerusalem, and it starts to get really uncomfortable. In three separate dialogues, Jesus says some pretty hard, radical things. There's two men who assert, hey, I want to follow you, Jesus. And then Jesus invites another guy to follow him. And listen to how this goes. Verse 57. I'll paraphrase this first part. I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. I want to travel this road with you. I will follow you wherever it takes me, Jesus. What's Jesus' response? Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What kind of response is that? Next, Jesus said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Seems reasonable. Jesus' response Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And the third man says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye. Again, pretty reasonable. Jesus' response, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Three potential recruits for Jesus, all wanting to sign up, all wanting to follow him. Two with very reasonable requests to take care of some personal matters first. How does Jesus respond? Come with me. You're not going to have a place to lay your head. Um, don't worry about burying your father. Somebody else will take care of that. And um, don't look back. Come with me now. Seems kind of insensitive to what's going on in their lives. Uh, seems kind of fanatical. What's going on? I mean, it's not reasonable to expect somebody to leave burial plans behind and not say goodbye to family. What's up with all this? What's Jesus driving at? What does he want from us? Well, first of all, what does Jesus mean by let the dead bury their own dead? Who are the dead who are left to bury the deceased? How does that work? Well, Jesus is referring to the the spiritually dead, to the spiritually not connected, to the spiritually apathetic. In other words, let those who are not spiritually alive look after business as usual in the world. Jesus says, I've got more important work for you to do. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And secondly, what does Jesus mean by no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God? 
Well, back in 1 Kings 19, there was a passage where, where the prophet Elijah, a uh, great prophet to Israel, is about ready to end his ministry and, and leave this life. And so he, he selects a protege, a successor for him, who will be the prophet to Israel, named Elisha. And Elijah extends this offer, this call to be his protege and to be the new prophet. Elisha says yes, but he says this as well. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will come with you. And Elijah says, sure. Isn't that a contradiction? Not if we look a little farther in this story. In verse 21 of 1 Kings 19, So Elisha left him and went back. And he took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. And he burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah. What's going on here? Well, Elijah, it's clear, was, or Elisha, it's clear, was a farmer. And by killing his oxen and burning his farm implements, he was burning all his bridges to his past. He had no way now to make a living. He was trusting that by committing all he had to God, that God will look out for his well-being. You see, all three situations in Luke 9 have to do with discipleship, with a call to commitment. And Jesus is, is asking these men to count the costs before following him. Jesus wants unconditional commitment, no strings attached, holding nothing back. Jesus is not setting up roadblocks to keep people from following him. Rather, he's establishing the absolute priority of the claims of the kingdom of God over everything else, which is pretty radical. I mean, if we wait till everything is in order in our lives, got our finances together, got our health together, got our kids well established, got our, our marriage in good shape, all these things, our business is in good shape, before totally committing to Christ, then it's unlikely that we ever will. Following Christ involves sacrifice. It involves action, not delay or inaction. There is no room for, but first, Lord, I'll, I'll share my faith, Lord, but first let me get over my discomfort. Let me get you know, better educated and prepared. Lord, I, I, I'll give regularly and intentionally, but first let me get my financial order uh, details in, in order. Let me pay off that loan. I'll serve, Lord. I'll use my time to help those around me, but, but first, Lord, I've gotta, things got to settle down in my life. First, Lord, but first... I want to ask you a question for reflection, and this is true of all of us. None of us are perfect in this area, but in what area of your life do you say to God, I will follow you, Lord, but first. I will follow you, Lord, but, but first, I, I, I just got to get this taken care of. I've I got to make secure this. I've got to make this sure this is all right, but first, Lord... The term disciple is used 269 times in the New Testament, the term Christian is used three times. To be a disciple means to go behind and to follow after. It implies pursuing Christ, choosing to walk the road that Christ walked, totally committed. And Christ took the road less traveled. I mean, he blazed a trail that no one had walked before and no one has walked since. In fact, Jesus spoke of himself as a road, as a passage. He said, I am the way and the life and the truth. So Jesus did not choose the conventional or the popular way. <clears throat> he followed the road that led to suffering and death. He took the road through enemy territory. He took the road to the margins of society. 
the sick, the unclean, those of different backgrounds and cultures. He took the road of total commitment, putting the kingdom of God first above all else, even his very life. The last three lines of a famous poem by Robert Frost state, Two roads diverge in a road, and in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Which road have you chosen? The conventional road, the one of least resistance, or have you chosen the one less traveled by? Choose the road that Christ traveled. Share your faith even when you face rejection. Reach out to those on the fringes of school or work, neighborhood or city. Give of your financial resources even when others are socking it away by the bundles and buying the very best and latest. Choose to follow Christ, to be a disciple, wholeheartedly willing to do whatever he calls you to do, willing to die to self. I want to close this uh, sermon series against the current by offering you a challenge. March to the beat of a different drummer. Break the mold. Choose Jesus Christ the way. Go against the current. Take the road that's traveled by, and I promise you, I guarantee you, it will truly make all the difference. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. And we thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ um, did not seek comfort. He did not seek to avoid um, what was waiting for him on the cross. But he came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He paid for our sin. Um, He defeated Satan, sin and death. And now he offers us new life in him. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us with your strength, would fill us with, um, with your hope and with your power, that we might live for you and with you, that we might be truly people who are different and distinct, uh, who love all around us, who love you, Jesus, with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, that others would be pointed to the grace and the mercy and the love and the life that we have found in Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.